something that happened last we're night. We're never going to start. I hope you know that. <laughs> I'm getting used to this kind of rhythm now, so we usually I just press idea. record and I try to get a moment of silence so I can press start. Oh, <laughs> and shit, you're actually recording right now? Of course. Ah, the, the interview is uh, already done, so... Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. We're going to have fun with this, ladies. Hell yeah. Okay. Kevin and his council of ladies. Mwaha. That's pretty cool. That is a good, that is a really good title. Oh my gosh, yeah. this takes me back Dude, to a different uh, podcast, a therapy takes show. me back to high school. This is not the first time I've been in this position of a council of ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and no, but it's even better because we are, we're all surrounding staring at you. <laughs> We're going to tell you, Kevin, what the hell is wrong with you today. <laughs> All right. Uh, Let's do this. In three, two, one. Uh. Hi, I'm Ethan Siegel, and I took a left at the valley, and I loved it. <laughs> I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith in unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an Coming at you after the typical goat sacrifice, this is Left in the Valley. My name is Kevin, and I turned wine into vomit. Your move, Jesus. <laughs> Joining me as usual is a team that will ask you to show us on the doll where Jesus touched you. In my heart. <laughs> she believes we should pay our taxes with a smile. She tried, but they want a cash. Nancy. <laughs> I know. Oh, well. You can keep trying, Nancy. Yeah, I keep trying. No rebuttal this week. <laughs> well, they say people, you know, certain people have a million dollar smile, and I thought I'd Oh, there we it. go. There we go. Love it. <laughs> and she thinks the world needs more humble geniuses. There are so few of us left. I know. <laughs> I am one of the last. And she says a good man can make you feel strong, sexy, and confident. No, sorry, that was wine. Wine does that. <laughs> that is wine so and a good woman. There we go. <laughs> yes. Ladies, ladies, welcome back. We're still searching for that. <laughs> uh, we're going to have a great show today. We're going to be talking to Michael Moore and we're going to be talking about, uh, about children and autism. Mm-hmm. So that would be very interesting. But first, let's do a bit of chit chat. Well, it has happened. The royal wedding. Do you care? Nope. All right. I missed it completely. I I literally on Facebook this morning. Oh, the royal wedding already happened. Okay. Scroll on. I saw an interesting (laughs) video about why they all wear the fancy hats. Oh, that's the best part. Oh, I love the hats. That's the the best part is the hats. I love the hats. Oh, yeah. Oh, you mean the the women? Why the women? The women wear like big elaborate hats. Enlighten me. Enlighten me. It's like the Kentucky Derby hats. Yeah. It's just fun. They're it's just cute. just a way that people to get dressed up for a boxing like, match. Tradition and like that's whoever can that's wear what's the, done. They should have like a secret door prize mm. for like whoever wears the craziest hats, and the queen gets to decide. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's like it's like having wedding and birthday cakes on your head. They are they're just fabulous, and you know you wonder how, you know who made them or did they where did they get I, them? I would so commission an engineering student to make my hat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I 
I learned an interesting little tidbit about the queen, and it's just, I know she's always wearing hats, and this is what made me think of it. Apparently, she has a matching umbrella for every single outfit. I love her so much. And a matching corky, too, right? A corgi. Corky, 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 whatever. Matching dog. Yep. Yep. Interesting. I didn't know that. She's rich enough. All right. Well, apparently that wedding is going to cost about $45 million. (laughs) It's obscene. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Uh, Well, as uh, long as we don't have to pay for it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, North Korea decided to back out of the the talks with South Korea. Surprise. Surprise. I am so surprised. But but you know what? They say they wanted the U.S. to disarm and to pull, to remove their their weapons in South Korea. That's going to happen. Yeah, but that's not a bad, that's not unreasonable for them to ask that. No. So it's like, okay, you know, people say, of course North Korea decided to back out. But yeah, I don't know. Well, I almost want to give the guy the benefit of a doubt here. That's a relatively reasonable request. I think it's a reasonable request. Well, you know, there's there's a pattern here. How many years have the U.S. and South Korea been having these um, games yeah. in that area? How many? So how long ago do you think the North Koreans said, you know, we could go right up to the brink because we know that the exercises and it's going to be the perfect excuse they all put smiles on their face and they're all waiting Mm. to use that as well no we can't do it it's like okay (laughs) we'll see what happens who who in this room is surprised nobody we'll see what happens and of course another week another shooting in the states this this one happened in Santa Fe Texas I'm going to be a bit of an ass here I'm sorry for the audience I'd like to thank all (laughs) these children that lay down their lives every week so the you uh, the American citizen can keep on carrying their guns. Yeah. Do you want it was so ridiculous? There was I someone talking about how the the school shootings would happen less if there was less doors. I know. It's like, it's like you are regulating doors before guns. guns. Are you this is actually how ridiculous this country has become? Kidding me. Well, they have to think of everything so that guns are yeah. pushed to the side they just so I mean that's stupid. the way the NRA thinks yeah this is in the Santa Fe High School in, uh, in Texas uh, 10 killed uh, 8 students and 2 teachers and 10 more were wounded uh, the suspect used a 30 caliber revolver and a shotgun his name is uh, Dimitrios Paguzzi he's 17 he has a criminal history and he even wrote in his journal that he planned to do the shooting and then commit suicide but he didn't yeah. do that and they caught him and, and I heard that he he dressed very strangely with long trench coats and yeah. had Nazi insignia and things like that on it. But nobody, I haven't heard enough to know whether or mm-hmm. not they thought he was really weird. Obviously, no one reported him. So it's it is it's tragic because it, it's it's another young person mm-hmm. with with an obvious mental problem that wasn't stopped or wasn't you know that the parents thought oh well he'll grow out of it whatever it is mm-hmm. it's sad it's it just really and tragic and of course uh, this this is a new reality for the students in the states and it's a really sad one um i'd like to point out that you know there have been more death civilian death by gun in the u.s than all the u.s wars ever since their inception mm-hmm. That is insane. That is absolutely insane. Okay, CNN, for example, there was a poll done by CNN says that uh, the uh, there is an estimated three hundred ten million guns in the U.S. and that was in two thousand and nine. Wow. India comes in at second place with forty six million, from three hundred ten to forty six million, <laughs> and the population of India is way larger than the states. Just slightly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Worldwide, this is still still 2009, there was an estimated 650 million guns for civilians. Worldwide, almost half of those in the U.S. And let's see, there have been... Wow. I think I heard one, one of the reporters say that this is the 16th school shooting this year. Is it 16? And yeah. so how many times... That makes 16 times that the same conversation has yes. been over and This over. year? This year. This year. 16 times with... Uh, and there have there has been some progress in some of the states because the feds won't do anything because they're bought off by the NRA. But some some states have actually banned um, the bum the bump bump stocks. bump stocks yeah. and and made you know a few little little movements. But overall, everybody says, well, maybe this is the time it's going to change. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, how many that? how many shootings is it going to take yeah. for them to go? Um, maybe this little tiny these little tiny steps and doing nothing is going to have that effect and do nothing. Exactly. I, 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 unless unless there really is a groundswell um, like there was with the Parkland students. unless the I'm students, putting my money on that. Yeah, because that, that's going to have to be the way it is. When it was Sandy Hook, that was an elementary school. Yeah. Elementary school students don't have much of a voice. High school students do get involved, and they, they, they're very close to voting age and all that, so they do get, you know, participate in the uh, the political process. And, of course, it's it's disgusting to see how the right attacks these kids right away and calls them fake actors and, and stuff like that it's it's just absolutely amazing so so what you really you really really need your gun that badly you know do you oh anyway I, do I, I, I think in the states it might not change until these kids who have grown up in this environment where every day they go to school they're like am i gonna die today yeah like i oh. think those when those kids <clears throat> A, lar- a large enough proportion of them become voting age because there are more population-wise people that age yes. than baby boomers. Yeah. So when they're able to vote, I think that might be when they flip mm-hmm. the... Well, then, and then all the other political stuff going on right now. Who knows what the political landscape in the States is going to look like in 10 years. We should also well, one of the show. reporters was interviewing... I I don't know whether she what year she was in maybe sophomore junior or whatever, and the reporter said, "Well, were you surprised?" (laughs) No, and and that's what she said. She said, "No." She said, "I knew it was just a matter of time before it happened here, and I was just scared." And when you think that this is the face now of the the typical high school student Mm -hmm. that they're not surprised because they see that's what's happening and they go to school every day thinking is this the day it's going to happen here i just wouldn't go to school i mean it's horrible and homeschooling yeah no kidding yeah yeah yeah, it's just amazing yeah uh nancy you remember uh was it last year they had this really huge controversy? Was it a white and gold dress or was it a blue and black? Okay, can, oh, we, can we just not talk Lord. about this, please? Here we go again. Literally everywhere. It's so no. Everyone knows technically, originally, the original audio was Laurel. And then it's an depending on which what stereo it's coming out of, it can be warped to sound like Yanny. No, it's not the stereo. Apparently it depends on your, your age as well. Because no, but there, there if you're are. Younger, oh, you'll hear Yanny. No, no, but the thing is, I've heard it both. Mm-hmm. Depending on what I'm listening to, in my car, I hear Yanny. In my headphones, I hear Laurel. You're kidding me. No. Okay, so it totally depends on, on the stereo. I've got, I've got the recording right here. So okay, you, you guys, tell me what you hear. Okay. Because I predict, I predict all three of us are going to hear <coughs> Yanny. 
and she's going to hear Laurel. Or Nancy's probably going to hear something like Pharaoh or something like that. <laughs> and aside. Laurel. I hear Laurel. Laurel. Really? I hear Laurel. Laurel. I hear Laurel. What are we Laurel. Doing? Well, it's not even the yammy. Laurel. It's more like a yammy, but... Laurel. That's amazing. I but hear Yanny too. If, but if, when I listened to it on my tablet, I heard Yanny, so it was totally yeah, it's different. Totally and I didn't hear Laurel until here, I moved it. One second. I'm going to switch headphones and see if I hear it different. An interesting thing, though, is when I'm listening to it, if I focus on it, it's, it's, okay, it's weird it as it sounds. Cool. I can hear the Laurel in there as well. And I'm not trying to be like, oh, I'm hearing Laurel too. Let's... Laurel. No, I still hear Laurel. <laughs> Laurel. Laurel. Yeah, no, but in my car, um, I'll hear in my car headphones. I'll hear totally different things. Oops. So are we all weird and strange, or are we all normal? No, it's well, just normal. It's I, an I, uh, audio. One of, the, one of the latest things I heard is apparently the uh, they say if your ears are of the younger variety, you're younger in age. No. So like you'll hear yeah. No. But this is weird because you're young. You're way younger it's, than I. It's totally what the audio is coming out of. And the interesting thing is, I've got the headphones on with my hearing aids at the same time, and we all heard the same thing. Mm-hmm. So even with the additional electronic enhancement interference or whatever, mm-hmm. we still all heard this. And same apparently, thing. the the original recording is actually Laurel. Yeah. Apparently, it is. The word is Laurel, but because of the way oh. it's distributed or whatever. Yeah. Huh. So experiment, we, guys. Listen to it on different mediums. Yeah, I guess we'll listen have to, to try it on that. your computers. On try it on your tablet. Like, see what it sounds like in different things. Exactly. Well, yeah. Like, if I were just somewhere and I were to just hear it, like on something, I would probably hear Yanny. But when you actually, when I actually look at it, I can see how it's actually Laurel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I've totally heard both. <coughs> oh yeah, I can hear them both as well. Okay. Well, we won't resolve this today, apparently. Nope. My dear Nancy. It's never going to be yes. resolved. You the talk. dress was black and blue. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, I saw it white and gold. So did I. I saw both as well. You got a top ten for us? Sure. All right. <laughs> okay. Everybody who's listening, I want you to remember this site. If you can't write it down, come back after you've listened to our entire podcast and get it again and then go to the site. It's called atlasobscura.com. Oh, this is the Best website. <laughs> AtlasObscura.com. Obscure. This is I'm a website that started in about 2007, and one of the people who started it was a documentarian, and the other one was a, was a writer, and what they wanted to do was have almost like an interactive type of a map where you could track odd and unusual things all over the world it, out of out of the way places where people had heard about but never gone and people could send in their experiences of where they had been on the map and so now you've got these maps and if you came to Vancouver and wanted to know well where are all the architectural atrocities where are all the beautiful gardens where whatever it is that you want to find or look for it's been mapped and really? You can go on and edit it. You can go on and put your own impressions on it. I think I like that site already. It's amazing. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's wonderful. And I just discovered it. So, uh, Christina, you're you're far ahead of me. I haven't been on it in a while, but I, I have definitely been on it. <laughs> I mean, if, 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 if I were to do the top ten on that website, I'd have years of, of yeah. top ten different things to do. Because it's just all crazy it's, stuff. It's crazy stuff. I it's, love crazy stuff. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Like, it, it's like National Geographic 
traffic. And then there used to be another website called Waymarker where people left um, uh, pictures and things that, and other people would find them. I think that's long gone, but it's really, it's, it's an interesting, interesting site. And the way I found it was because I saw the, um, the headline that said, The Obsessively Detailed Map of American Literature's Most Epic Road Trips. I thought, oh, we're That's coming awesome. up on road trips because Epic road trips. on road trips. And what they did was they looked for the, the two writers that did this particular one, they looked for novels that were really detailed in the different places in, in the United States, either because they were road trip novels or they the road trip was a side effect of the main story. But they put all of these maps together in detail so that if anyone wanted to follow where the authors of these books had been or where they placed it, you can go. And you can do it as, as these places were in 1916, or you can do it and see what's changed. So these are the books that inspired the road trips, and maybe they're books that you've already read, or maybe they're books that you'd pick up and say, well, you know, I think I'll follow the, the destinations in, in the book and, and see how everything has changed. So the first one um, book um, is called Wild, and the author is Cheryl Strayed. I don't know that book. It's from 2012. And the book is about a series of personal crises, and the author then hits the Pacific Crest Trail and walks from Southern California to Portland and what she learns during that during that trip. That's anybody a bit of a ever, hike. Anybody wow. ever hear of that one? Well, I know the Pacific Trail, but yeah. that's a bit of a hike. Yeah, oh, Cheryl Strayed, S-T-A-Y-E-D, S-T-A-R-Y-E-D, there we go. Um, then moving way back in history, The Cruise of the Rolling Junk by F. <laughs> Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> and that was in, in 1934, and Scott and Zelda's wacky adventures along the muddy, unkept road of the Mid-Atlantic and South as they drive from Connecticut to her hometown of Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so there's got to be a lot of small towns, a lot of interesting things. There's something interesting about uh, doing the road trips in, in that era because a lot, of, a lot of the roads weren't paved. They were like mm. dirt roads and exactly. stuff like that. And with the weather, you know, like when you listen to these first pioneers that rode across the country on motorcycles. Oh, yeah. They were like, you know, knee deep in mud that trying to was, push a bike. It's like, my God, what a... Yeah, the distance between we have places it easy to today. get gas and, and thing and food it was. This one is a real good one. Rolling Nowhere, Riding the Rails with America's Hobos. And that's from 1984. And the author is Ten Conover. And he is a method journalist. Um, and he, he doesn't have a lot of sentimentality about what he's writing. And so he's, he writes about a subculture of the transients. And uh, it's been mourned and romanticized, you know, about the hobos. But this is the hobos and what they were like and where they went. And have you ever been attracted to books about hobos? And uh, not really, but I, I've, I've actually had a chance to spend time and talk with someone who had spent yeah. most of their life riding the rails. He was, he was interesting. For a yeah. second there, I thought you were going to ask, have you ever been attracted to hobos? Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> For a second there, okay, I thought you were going to ask This is a book that I've read, and it was, it was, um, it, it was written in 1979, but I think I, I read it about five or six years ago, called A Walk Across America, and the author is Peter Jenkins. Not that Peter Jenkins was on ABC, but this uh, Peter Jenkins 
has a, had a dog, Cooper, and they go to New Orleans from upstate New York. And along the way, they encounter poverty and racism and hippies and illness and all that kind of stuff. And um, then there's a death, um, but I won't tell you with who. Read the book. And then they end up in Mobile, Alabama. Mobile. Mobile, Alabama, and that's a that's a, a really really interesting book. Again, small town mm-hmm. and the, the people that he meets. Um, it, next one, cross country, 15 years and 90,000 miles on the Ooh. roads and interstates of America with Lewis and Clark, and the author is Robert Sullivan. 2006, and so he follows, I mean, the title is self-evident, he follows um, Lewis and Clark and where they went, and it's kind of a straight shot across the continent, um, even though there's interstates and, and uh, chain motels, um, yeah. at this point, it's a it's an interesting, interesting book. Um, in 1989, a book called The Lost Continent by Bill Bryson, and that's an account of uh, a guy who returns from abroad and his reacquaintance with the U.S., and he seems to be reminded on every page why he left it, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, then, and then why we let him back in. Uh, th- this is another one that I that I read and really enjoyed. I think I read this one about four or five years ago called Blue Highways, A Journey into America by William Least Heat Moon. That's his hmm. entire name. Um, he was kind of critical of... of uh, um, uh, he read books that were kind of critical about small-town life in America, but um, this guy... Um, took his van on the road for three months and he separated from his wife and stuck only to the smaller height. When you look at the map and you sort of the mm-hmm. major ones are the red roads, well, he took the blue ones to see what was off, nice. the, off so, the interstate. So it's like Google Maps when you put the to stay off of a highway or freeways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he really he really goes to a lot of different quirky places. And um, I, of all of these so far, I think if he really wanted to follow anybody, um, William Moon, I think, would be the... He, he'd be the one that mm-hmm. I, I would follow. Then here's a famous one, On the Road, by Jack Kerouac, back in 1957. Um, that's a classic. Did anybody ever read that? No, that one? Yeah, I'm more like the fantasy. And the, yeah, the <laughs> new generation <laughs> and, you know, the James Dean. Kind There's no of, Harry Potter in that. She's not Harry know. Potter, yeah. <laughs> this is one that I've read, and it's one of the first ones in 1872 by Mark Twain called Roughing It. It's just a wonderful book. You wonder how in the world they ever survived with the stagecoaches and, and all the rough and tumble kinds of things with the silver mines that were <laughs> going on and the different characters. It's beautifully written, and you really get a sense from him because he's such a great writer. You really you, you almost feel worn out from riding in the stagecoach after, <laughs> after you've read a couple of pages. But it, it's just just great. Um, it, if you, I, I really recommend that book because of the time and the place and because of the author so if you really want to do that one it's well worth well worth the read um here's another one that maybe you know zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance that was that's a classic i've seen that book yeah that's robert persig p-i-r-s-i-g 1974 and uh he and his son uh go to california 
and it's a very profound philosophical kind of book, very 1970s. And that one, that was on the the best you know books to read mm-hmm. in terms of time and place for a long time. Um, Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck beautiful book that was in 1962 and he took his uh, black poodle and in a customized van named after um, Don Quixote's horse (laughs) and he just went out into the territories and uh, he and and uh, he and the dog are, are wonderful companions and it's John Steinbeck. You ever read any John Steinbeck? Uh, I don't think I have. I've heard of his work but I never yeah, think I've read he, his. He did, he, he did a lot, you know, around the Monterey, California area. Beautiful, beautiful writer. It, that, that's one, he, uh, uh, that's a must read. Anything of Steinbeck is a must read but that one is, the, but he was a little bit older and it's a, it's a good book. And the last one the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by an author who just died this past week, Tom Wolfe. Oh. And that 19, book sounds like it was ni- yeah, 19, written in like the 70s. Yeah, in 1968, <laughs> Ken Kesey and the highly acidic Mary Pranksters took a bus across the country to explain about taking acid and about you know the the, the new the new life of of uh, psychedelic and and um, uh, meanderings here and there and the philosophy and uh, they they really wanted to shake people up to let them know that a new era had arrived and they needed to either get with it or you know they they, they wouldn't be cool mm-hmm. and I, I just heard a piece on um, CBC about Thomas it was funny it was on on the list and they did an interview with one of the men who was one of the original merry pranksters mm-hmm. so if you if you want to you know get an idea of why Tom Wolf was revered and will be revered for a long time the title is <laughs> the electric kool-aid acid test 1968 go get it and read it just a name makes you curious yeah. I, know. <laughs> I, I know as soon as I heard it I'm like sounds hmm. like a Beatles hmm. album <laughs> something you read on the soul train by the way Tom <laughs> Wolf got in the habit early on of wearing white suits and it was just his thing and there he was on the bus with all these merry pranksters in his white suit Oh, man, he must have been a target for anything that's <laughs> stains. <laughs> yeah, but they, they, all, they all took him in, and they all admired him, and they knew he was special during, during that time. So cool. read that one, for sure. Great list, great list. Uh, thank you, Nancy. Appreciate that. Can I jump in here for a sec? It's insane how many more road trips you can do in the States than in Canada. <laughs> in Canada, it's just kind of like a... Kind of just a straight shot across the bottom of the country. Well, yeah, that's because the rest of anything above north of us is essentially wildland. Well, I looked on, I, I did look on Atlas Obscura to see, you know, what they had about Canada, and they really got an awful lot of really quirky things. I think like one of the hotels near Vancouver is the the left foot in a shoe, the a left the left shoe, um, in a boot. Motel. It's not, you know, it's not named after all these shoe incidents. Yeah. Oh no! Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. So they they take you to places that <laughs> you know you you might go straight across, but if you take what they call oh, the blue highways and oh. the off 
pathways you find. Yeah. For, for the audience that might not know what we're talking about, uh, there's been a, kind of an ongoing mystery that's been going on in the, in the region, the Vancouver region, for a couple of years now, where um, shoes and, and human feet are washing up ashore in a shoe. It's obviously somebody, you know, that fell overboard, drowned, and, you know, decomposition, and the shoe kind of floats. Mm-hmm. So it kind of breaks at the ankle there. The bone kind of breaks at the ankle, and it floats, and eventually makes its way to shore. And then, then you have the mystery of you have a, a human foot. Uh, and and they named the hotel after this? There's a motel. Oh, like, man. There's been, like, what, like a dozen of these shoes <laughs> found there? I'm telling you, you, if you get on Atlas Obscura, you're not coming out of there. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to go check yeah, that no, site. I know what to, I'm doing tonight. Yeah, we'd have to, we'd have to pull you out with uh, with, our, with, our, with tools. Like, <laughs> get you out of there. That's awesome. Oh, perfect. My dear Kirsten, you ready to regale us with another brilliant moment? I think I am. It'll be a short segment this day, this week. That's okay. <clears throat> Rick Wiles. They're Rick building Wiles. a global brain that will embody Lucifer's mind. Ooh. Oh, goodness. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> We're building a global brain? Oh, okay, go, go. She'll go explain. Global oh, brain. Oh. <laughs> you thought that was bad. Yeah. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> Alarmed by reports that a computer program has learned to play Texas Hold'em so efficiently (laughs) (laughs) that it can now defeat professional poker players, radio host Rick Wiles warned on his True News radio broadcast that it is now only a matter of time before Satan takes over the world using a global brain. Satan is Skynet. I knew it! (laughs) Because Texas Hold'em involves bluffing. Schwarzenegger so is the Antichrist. <laughs> I knew it! I knew it! So he's convinced that computers are now learning how to lie. And since Satan is the father of all lies, it stands to reason that we will soon have a demon-possessed, see, artificially intelligent robots controlling the world. See, this is what's going to happen. The computer's going to look at this and say, this human is too stupid, we need to eliminate humans like him, and that's how Armageddon starts. Thank you, Rick Wiles. <laughs> If you have a machine that is capable of lying, then it has to be connected to Lucifer, he said. Now we're back into the global brain. This is where they're going. They're building a global brain that will embody Lucifer's mind, and so Lucifer will be deceiving people through the global brain. Oh, and science and theology. Oh, lie. yes, yes. Plug into Lucifer. I'm just trying to figure out Lucifer's got something no, plug up his Lu- ass. Lucifer, you know, you know it's going to be like Siri, and you like pull your phone. <laughs> Lucifer... What's the weather like outside? Raining hellfire. <laughs> I would get so much enjoyment out of that. Um, oh, we've got to, we've got to help build this thing. <laughs> <laughs> to make matters worse, Wiles warned, demon-possessed robots will soon start replacing human workers, resulting in massive unemployment, which is why the deep state is planning to start a global war for the purpose of killing off all those people who are no longer needed. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm going to tell you where I think this is going, he said. I think, a deep s- I think the deep state planners have already figured this out, and they have scheduled a massive war to eliminate tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions, of useless eaters. I really <laughs> believe that. Useless eaters. Oh. I, this is where, where it's going. It's going to the loony bin right now. That's where it's going. Oh my god! Now, I, you know what? If you're a demon, let's face it. Why would you possess a soft, squishy human when you can possess a nice metal robot? Come on! Or like a cockroach. 
Yeah, I mean, he's never gonna sounds, die. You're a demon. To me. Dude, you, you, it's your it's your prerogative who you possess as a demon. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, who says you have to possess a freaking human? They're kind of yeah. squishy. So they're now, easy to kill. Yeah, and now it's not like either Satan's taking over or technology's taking over. Both, both is good. That's right. Now you can possess a robot. That's oh, awesome. I, a, a future. We oh can my really gosh, forward dude! To, I love it. That's why. That's why Alexa laughs. That's why Alexa laughs. Alexa's the devil. Yeah. If you if you if you rearrange the letters, Alexa, you you get nothing. No. But, they, uh... <laughs> but there's a deep meaning behind that nothing. There, it's deep, not very a nothing, deep nothing. nothing. Yes. It's a something nothing. There's yeah, absolutely. To be a, to ha, have you guys heard Alexa's laugh? No, I have not. It's the, she literally will just run in and be like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> like, no prompting. I think I've heard it too, and it's just really weird and out there. You just have to lower the frequency since it's going to be looser. Oh, 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 exactly. Oh, oh. oh, I see a graphic novel in the works and an animated That cartoon. would be so funny. Like, oh. A book where Lucifer is like stuck in technology but can't really do anything. Lucifer's stuck in a toaster. Except like be like, communicate like Siri. <laughs> <laughs> He's avoiding computer viruses like hell. It's like, oh my god. Lucifer's stuck in a cell phone. Oh, that yeah. <laughs> With a cracked screen. <laughs> oh, gosh, I want this I want this TV show now. Hey, you know, thank you, Rick Wiles. You're giving I us great just, ideas for TV it's shows. Stuck in, and it's that blue thing is just spinning. <laughs> <laughs> it's thinking. It's thinking. He's sneaking onto poor porn. I'm like, <laughs> and making making the little the brow like the loading sign on those videos like ha <laughs> on on all the Christians watching porn. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Alexa or Siri, give me the nearest church. Well, now we're gonna Searching have Lucy for Pornhub. <laughs> now we're gonna have Lucy. Now we, uh, who's Lucy? Lucifer. Lucifer, of course. Yeah, Thank, that, you. That's Thank good, you. That's gonna be the the AI's name, Lucy. <laughs> They'll never oh know. Lucy, find me the nearest Baptist church. Searching for a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh my gosh, I want this. Oh, you know what? If Satan, uh, Satan should totally go into that. The future is telecommunication for sure, right? Yep. <laughs> oh, that's it? That's the only one that's I That's the only today. one this week? Oh, yeah, that's it's okay. It's been a long my, week, guys. It's been a long yeah. week. That's fine. Thank you so much, Kirsten. I appreciate that. That was great. You were very welcome. <laughs> An old dose of laughter every week. If we can appreciate that. Uh, all right. Thank you, ladies. Well, well, let's take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we'll have Michael Moore. And we'll have our uh, interview with him about children and autism. So stay with us. Here's an excerpt from Powerless No Longer by Peter W. Soderman. One night in late August 1990. I was sitting in my living room, continuing a normal evening of drinking, after the mosquitoes drove me inside. I was making up stories in my head about adventures that would never happen, when my 15-year-old daughter appeared out of nowhere. She stood 10 feet in front of me, fiddling with a piece of paper in her hand. Dad, she said with a tremor in her voice, what did you think of the poem I read for you on the deck? You said you wanted to think about it for a while. What poem? I couldn't remember even seeing her earlier, let alone any poem. Thrusting the paper towards me, she said, This poem, Dad, I've been working on it for days. I looked towards the floor and muttered something, hoping it was appropriate. I can't remember what I said. When our eyes met, 
I watched her expression change from hurt to anger, then from anger to disgust. I saw myself reflected in her eyes as we both realized at the same instant that I was a complete fraud. She crumpled the paper into a ball and tossed it onto the rug. Her hair swirled as she spun on her heel and ran from the room. I forgot the poem, but I still remember her sobs. I looked around the room as if seeing it for the first time and realized this was coming to an end and damn soon. We were living off sales from two years ago and the pipeline was empty. I was a liar, a cheat, and a phony and one of the few around me who didn't realize it. If the world would stop, I thought, I could get myself together and begin to make things right. I tried hard not to drink anymore that evening, but the glass magically continued to fill itself. When the pendulum clock on the wall bonged 1 a.m., I stumbled up the stairs, undressed, and fell into bed. As the room began to spin, I felt absolute panic. I knew I couldn't face life without alcohol to kill the pain. Yet, I knew I would die if I continued to drink. Powerless No Longer, Reprogramming Your Addictive Behavior by Peter W. Soderman is now available at AtheistAudiobooks.com. In a world torn apart by a lack of reason... And I think it should be religion treated with ridicule and hatred and contempt. And I claim that right. In the morning. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Stanley from the Right to Reason podcast. And if you subscribe now, you'll get free. Learn more about the broadcast at therighttoreason.com. point of mystery, and in gets invoked God. This, over time, has been described by philosophers as the God of the gaps. If that's where you're going to put your God in this world, then God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. When you're gone for a day, on your own, All right, our next guest has a master's in occupational therapy uh-huh. out of the East Michigan University. He's a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer. Michael Moore, thank you so much for joining us at Left of the Valley. I'm glad to be here, and, and I am a snappy dresser and a fancy dancer. I know, finally I got one. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we've, really, we've really been looking forward to your, to your coming, so uh, it, it's going to be a great discussion. Yeah, uh, you, you, you've been uh, getting a bit of a following down south in the States. You might not be as well known up here in, in north of the 49. Maybe you'll give us a, a quick bio as to who Michael Moore is. Uh. <laughs> First of all, you, you're, not, you're not that filmmaker, right? I'm not the filmmaker guy, so if you've tuned in expecting that, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, so no, anyways, I, I, I started off making a living as a musician, um, but uh, realized that um, 
I really enjoy helping people and I love teaching. And someone, when I was in my 20s and I was performing, I was kind of bemoaning um, the music business when the internet was starting to destroy everybody's lives. Um, and someone said, you'd be a good occupational therapist. And I said, what's that? And so I researched it. I applied to, to Eastern and I had a, uh, a bachelor's in music, but I also had a minor's in psychology and a minor's in, in science and a bunch of other um, credits. And uh, so Eastern took me and uh, I finished up in 2000 and um, I took a few years off to uh, take care of my, my father who uh, just had a series of health issues, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and he passed away, and then I finally started to, to work in the field, and uh, a few years went by, and I fell into a job working for De Detroit Public Schools, working with children, mainly children with disabilities, uh, focusing on autism um, and ADHD and uh, some bipolar Tourette's and other related disorders. Um, as well as uh, cognitive impairments, and uh, and of course, what we just got through talking before we started recording is is lead poisoning as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, that's been about thirteen thirteen some years doing that. So, so how does a musician begin? <laughs> Decide all of a sudden to become a uh, to study autism. Uh, it seems like the farthest thing you would expect from a musician. Well, I was a classical guitarist, and classical guitarists are overwhelmingly concerned with technique and in order of operation and the ergonomics of the body because it's such a high demand high art form and I certainly didn't have the talent to be you know a world-class classical guitarist but I loved studying I still love playing I still play all the time and uh, so I was a good I was good at teaching the technique of classical guitar and guitar and I still I still teach as well um, and a friend of mine who was also an artist and a physical therapist said, well, you'd be a good occupational therapist. Um, and so that's what kind of got me into it. I thought maybe I'd become a hand therapist or even a hand surgeon. Um, but when I fell into the Detroit job working with those children, I got kind of hooked on the the the, the phenomena of autism and the, the sort of the mystery of it. Um, and also just having an interest in philosophy, having an interest in um, how the mind works and how the brain works and how the components of the brain interact. Um, I found it just I found it just amazing to work with these children. It is. Um, they, pull, they pull you in immediately and, and then you want to solve. You want to yes. solve everything and bring them back tomorrow. And but yes. you, you know, you've got you, you've got a long road to go. Mm -hmm. I, you know, what I. My philosophy became at some point that, you know, they were, their extensions, they're, you know, it's a continuum. And so I realized that, you know, we're all on this continuum. We all have these components in our, in our brains and in our personalities that sometimes those components don't work efficiently as other components do, or sometimes they fail or they, they fall apart. And autism is just this sort of drastic, um, expression of some of those components that uh you know affecting personality and so i don't know i kind of see a, a i just saw them as just a, a few degrees off normal and thought you know we're really we can go at this the wrong way you know i we really should be trying to make them more comfortable and trying to understand how they're perceiving the world sensor wise sensory wise um so that was that was my feeling about all of that um, it, and it's, you know, it's, 
I don't know. Any questions about that? No, no, it's just it is. It's a it's it's a it's a challenge, but every step forward that you make with that child brings him a little bit closer to being able to negotiate the world in a better way and it also helps to relieve the caregivers of doing something for that child and, and that child can now perhaps you know master some kind of a self-help skill or a language word or use words correctly and it's um, it's a wonderful thing to be part of that process. You don't know how far that child is going to go, but you know that you've made some progress, and it's such a wonderful partnership to do that with with a child that needs your help. Okay, i got to jump in here because I, I, sure. feel, I, I feel I'm talking to two really smart people, and I'm the dumbass <laughs> here eating paste in the corner. And I thought since you know, there could be some people in the audience that are just dumb as me, maybe we should start with, because everybody hears autism, but I'm not sure people clearly know what it is. Maybe you two uh, would be so kind to explain to my dumbass what autism <laughs> is. Maybe give us maybe a brief, a brief history lesson here. It's a communication deficit, okay. basically. Um, and it's also sort of an emotional communication deficit to a degree. An emotional Where, communication deficit? I'm sorry? An emotional communication deficit? Well, to, to it's a communication deficit, but it's also an emotional communication deficit as well. When you know one person with autism, you basically only know one person with autism. Sometimes people with autism appear very verbal, but they'll use language very literally. Um, the the I forget uh, what's his name, the character on The Big Bang Theory, um, Sheldon. Sheldon. Yeah, he's obviously Asperger's. He's obviously. Uh, someone like that. He uses language very literally, very matter-of-factly. He's on the continuum. Um, the writers don't come right out and say that. They don't even tell the actor that, but that's how they're writing him, and that's how he's being perceived. Um, but then sometimes children with autism, they have a hard time just developing or acquiring language. They'll be very nonverbal. Um, and so they'll, they'll, they could have sensory deficits as well. And so they're not, when, they're, when they hear people talk, they're not actually processing language at all, what, what they think they're, what you, what you're perceiving as language is being heard, um, so they're not acquiring it in that fashion. Um, so sometimes sign language is taught to them. Um, sometimes uh, teaching language through other types of reinforcement, other types of behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. uh, then language is reinforced. And sometimes the children will acquire some type of speaking facility, but it just depends on the innate abilities in that particular child. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes, and sometimes therapy is there to facilitate just different types of communication between the parents or caregivers and the children, and helping them understand how to make the child more functional in their in their home environment and less set off sensory wise. So sometimes going into the home and, and saying, okay, these types of materials. Um, the child has an aversion to, so the child isn't sleeping, so that's exacerbating all these other types of behaviors. Or children with autism have very sensitive gastrointestinal tracts, mm. and so their diets really have to be considered and thought of. And uh, if you can look up books uh, on the internet, and there's tons and tons of books of, of the theories and different practices of diets for children with autism. Uh, and most are actually most are actually quite good. I, I only found a few that I thought were kind of wacky or bogus, but most of them were, were on the right road, basically. Um, looking out for tons of artificial flavoring and artificial color, you know, those are the things to really be aware of. Um, so, 
Hmm. Yeah, and hmm. a lot of times that these children are also hypersensitive to noise, and they get yes. distracted very easily. Yeah. And a lot of times, if you, when working with children like that, sometimes they they do better with headphones, even headphones that have white noise. Each yes. child, and you know, I'm deferring to you, Michael, and just jumping in and 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 accessorizing hmm. a, a little bit. But so many times, you have to take each child individually and yeah, do a definitely. lesson plan and if you have and, and it's very difficult to work at least it was with me michael it's, it was very difficult to work with more than one child at a time and it's always been a one-on-one -on -one. do you find that as well i only ever did one-on-one -on -one. One -on -one, i yeah. um no one ever complained about my productivity thank god <laughs> <laughs> no, no they can't <laughs> so you don't um, like what I'm doing? You sit here for a day and a half and see. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting I'm getting the impression that when you use the label autism, it's, it seems to encompass such a, a vast array well, of quote unquote yeah. conditions. That that brings up another point. You know, the the DS the, the gang and the DSM mm -hmm. um, every few years or so redefine autism and they redo the umbrella. Um, characteristics that will go into it. Um, so there's a lot of childhood um, developmental um, diseases and syndromes that have been basically thrown away. And now it, autism basically covers, encompasses what used to be like a pervasive developmental delay or pervasive, um, oh my God, I forget what it's called. Uh, destruction syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, there's a few, few fairly uh, failure to thrive. Some children that were uh, diagnosed with failure to thrive now are being diagnosed with autism. Um, so it's and you know and I actually think that's problematic. And I think the next incarnation of the DSM they'll be reading redefining those those features as well, and they'll have a whole new. Uh, criteria for so I mean I expect that will will be the case. So how how much different is our understanding of autism today as compared to twenty thirty years ago? Uh, you very, want me you want me to take the twenty thirty years ago and then you can sure <laughs> and then, <laughs> then you can get into the advanced civilization. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask you the retro autism. question, Nancy, but, and then, then we, I'll ask yeah, Michael. I'll, the, I, I lived through the you know the period from nineteen from the uh, the late sixties mm. to um, almost nineteen eighty, and the period where I was a speech pathologist working in the public schools, it was a um, it was evolving and working with, it was called infantile autism at that point. And there really wasn't a spectrum. There was just a group of behaviors that were all severe. They were all emotional and speech related with the occasional child who did ritualistic movements to help himself stay focused or oriented or satisfied within himself. So there wasn't a spectrum. There was only the autistic child who at that point still had a little um, a tinge of it's your mother's fault attached yes. to, to the child. So when we, as speech pathologists, would work with that child, we would try to get the parents to to do what Michael was talking about, you know, to help that child to enhance, to explain, you know, and to, to do what they could. And it was very difficult. You got the occasional 
parents that really worked well with the child, but a lot of times parents were so riddled, riddled with guilt that it was their fault, and they were, they were behaviors that were so destructive that the parents were so distraught that it was really difficult to mm. get them get them to focus. And you know, building on that, Michael came in at a, at a time I think that this began to be a little bit better in terms of both therapy and working with parents. So once they realized past the 70s that autism wasn't caused by disco music, <laughs> then they decided to start doing some more research, and this is where Michael comes in. Uh, what's, well, it's not, it's not where I come in. It's, it's where a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, researchers and doctors before me came in. Um, but it, it's, it's an X chromosome disorder, which is why you see it being... Um, mostly the vast majority of the children with autism being being boys. Um, a female has an extra X chromosome, which kind of protects them oh. from the genetic damage that causes the features um, of autism, but not just autism, but uh, ADHD and bipolar disorder and Tourette's and, and uh, OCD and other right um, hemisphere uh, disorders. So that's, that's where it is now. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So, 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 the 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 double X chromosome essentially offers protection on a genetic yes. level for 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 women, or do they have maybe a reduced version on the spectrum? Um, that's a good question. Do we see? I mean, I that those numbers I'm, I cannot comment on. Okay. That would be speculation, but that would be interesting to see. It's like, do we see more severe extreme cases in males than we do females? Although in my, in my personal experience, my anecdotal evidence, I've had some, uh, some very extreme cases of females as I have with males, but a vast majority of my clientele in the schools with autism have been, have been male. Wow. Um, yeah. But uh, quite a few females, though, as well. Um, but yes, now what causes it? Well, it's it's genetic. It's it's just damage. Um, so the various things in our environment that cause that type of damage. Um, oddly enough, there is um, we are seeing higher numbers of autism in industrialized places that utilize a high degree of oil and petroleum refineries. Mm. Yeah, so we're poisoning ourselves to death, as <laughs> as uh, as you would expect. Yeah, uh, it seems uh, toluene, T-U-L-E-N-E. It's a byproduct of the manufacturing and refining of gasoline. Mm-hmm. Um, it does a lot of damage to our X chromosome, and uh, that's a culprit that uh, is suspected of being one of many. But that's one of the one of the culprits as why we're seeing some of those numbers in some of those industrialized areas of the high degree of autism as well. So no, come on, Michael. I gotta play devil's advocate half a second here. Come sure. on. You've you've heard you've heard a rumor. You know full well it's caused by vaccines, right? <laughs> we know full well by now there was this study by this quack. What was his name? <laughs> I, oh. I, I, I brought a blank. I forget that guy's name. He, he did a study at like twelve yeah, patients. Field. Sorry, Andrew Wakefield. Wakefield. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Wakefield. Yes. So, share to care to comment on that irrefutable evidence. The nineteen ninety eight Lancet article that's been retracted, and all the the contributors have basically pulled their support of it and have apologized and 
Um, so basically, that article, you know how large his sample size was for that article? Yeah, it was something ridiculous, like 12 people or something like that. It was 12 people. Yeah. <laughs> it was 12 kids. Yeah. And specifically, the 12 kids he knew, they were part of a lawsuit. They were looking to sue the pharmaceutical company. So he took that on. Oh, so, I mean, it was, it's, it, was a, it was a research um, <laughs> protocol from hell, basically. <laughs> yes. Uh. It, it didn't seem very honest. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> no, right, when you pull it apart and all of its uh, – how it was pieced together, it's just like how it ever got published in the first place was just incredible. It really is sad. So Wakefield uh-huh. comes onto the, 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 the public place with this questionable study and people just lose their shit. Well, getting back to getting back to what was what was being stated earlier, you you have parents feeling a huge amount of guilt that they did something wrong, and then here's this doctor giving them a boogeyman, yes, and in yes. in giving them an out, and so it's it's a and it's a very clear case. It's like a murder she wrote episode, um, and so it you can see why it would take off and spread so virulently through the population as as it did and as it has. Basically, you know, I have friends, I have educated friends that I sit with and have a beer over and with their newborn baby. And they're like, they're not going to, you know, vaccinate their child. And I'm like, why not? And it's like, you know, because of those evil pharmaceutical companies. And I'm just like, okay, let's go through this again, you know. And I explain to them and everything. And but, you know, through dealing with them, I've, I've worked on trying to be a better communicator um, for the parents that I work with and uh, the general environment on, on this topic, you know, Michael, you, you know, let, let's take a let's take a, a second here. And you said you you go and you explain to your friends. Let's pretend, for example, I, I, I'm your friend, and we just had a beer, and I said, you know, I'm not vaccinating my dog. What are you telling me here? What, You're not vaccinating your dog, or or, or or my cat, or or my sister. It doesn't matter. So, so <laughs> I'm not vaccinating somebody. So what would your response to that be? Well, feline leukemia is a very deadly disease. <laughs> and if you care about bubbles, then if you love bubbles and you want bubbles to live a long time, I definitely think you should get uh, the feline leukemia virus. So there. Yeah, vaccines. but there's mercury in those vaccines there. Come on. <laughs> well, if you're, if you're talking, want to talk about, you know, again, it's, it's worth always talking about the, the methylmercury and the difference between methylmercury and ethylmercury that's in um, vaccines. However, it's in or the, the Marisol, but that's actually the pharmaceutical companies wanting to stave off any type of unreasonable, even understanding um, or be misunderstood. They've actually pulled that as a preservative, mm-hmm. which actually has now made our vaccines uh, the shelf life actually less, and actually have made them more fragile and actually less effective because of this. So, if the the anti-vax movement has worked at all, it's actually made vaccines less effective for the general population as a whole because there's no thimerosal in any vaccines anymore. There hasn't been in over seven years. Wow. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it's it's funny because I I looked it up and no, it, it was phased out a long time ago. It was phased out. I think it still exists in a few vaccines, but but by and large, most of the vaccines there's no thimerosal in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, we can't help but compare because you know we're so close to the border and we deal with Americans on on a very regular basis. We can't help but compare the uh, maybe the political climate to what's going on in the states right now as compared to uh maybe what happens north of the 49th and in regards to uh health uh do you feel that the current political climate in the states is conducive to helping the situation in in your field 
No, I, I, it quite worries me. Um, you said you live in Detroit, right? I mean, Detroit's got to yes. be—it's got to be a prime <laughs> example. Yeah, I quite—I'm I'm worried about how we treat each other and and as a as a society. Um, I like civilization. You know, that's why I do what I do. I like it. I want it to continue, mm-hmm. um, and I want it to become. Um, better for the weak and the powerless because we can all at some point in our lives be weak and powerless for factors way beyond our control and um it 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 breaks my heart when i see the our current legislature in the state just really drag their feet turn their backs him and haw um be poor poor stewards of their responsibilities and, and, and how they're supposed to, to handle things. Um, you know, I, I was mentioning before we went on air that, you know, I had uh, several children on my caseload with, with verified lead poisoning. Um, and this is in Detroit. And, and this actually just made the news very quietly, too. It wasn't a big news story, but it was in the news just a, just a few weeks ago, finally, after I've been seeing these children for about a year now. Mm-hmm. And... Just the, the lack of outrage about this, the lack of outrage of actually demanding that, you know, dig up all these pipes and replace them. Yes, it will cost millions of dollars. So damn what? Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it frustrates me to no end. They'd rather give a tax cut to rich people and businesses oh, yeah. rather than rather than make sure that our water is safe to drink. And that really makes me sick. And I'm quite angry about that. Oh, yeah. It, with your with your caseload. Um, back in the dark ages when I was teaching, and I was in Texas, I was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and, and since we just had the the one type of autism that was discovered at that time, we had, I think the birth rate was like one in every thousand, something like that, and so now, what is your, what is your, I mean, it's not, what is your caseload like with the autism spectrum? How, how prevalent is it in, in your school system? I'd have 50 kids on my caseload. Oh, um, my gosh. Yeah, that's a yes. lot. That's, that's a lot. And you see them how, how frequently? Um, I try to get to them at least two times a month. Some children I got to more than that um, because of the demands of the diagnosis. And I think because of the movability, I think there was in, some innate, innate abilities there to be addressed. Um, and so I... I, I you know, as as the clinician on hand, I sort of made a priorities list, and I have to go through those priorities and sort of see what I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, so, I didn't mean to. So no, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. So, of the fifty on my caseload, about thirty would would be autism. And so, are these children also in special education? Are they? Do they get regular speech? Um, speech we. I, I'm from the old school when we were speech therapists. Now, and everybody is speech pathologists. But do, do they get regular speech and language help yes. as well, so that they get a full, yes. you know, wraparound support? Yes, yes, yes. And and some were so severe they were in a self-contained classroom with no more than seven, and yeah. with a, a teacher and a para pro. Yeah, we uh, we we did that as well. We had a. Um, actually, a school that was devoted to special education—they don't ever—they don't do that anymore. But we had the small classes because some of the, the the more severe kids would be triggered, whether it be by diet or hyperactivity or something would trigger it, 
And the approved method at that time of calming a child was to wrap him in a sheet and wrap them with a really large sheet and sometimes two so that they couldn't hurt themselves and supposedly that was calming. I don't know whether or not that's considered, you know, the, the worst possible way to handle it, but it, 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 it was effective. We hated to do it, but it seemed to... Didn't they do that in ancient Egypt? They used to wrap yeah, you in a sheet the and then push you in a coffin yeah, somewhere? Yeah, no, but we did. <laughs> the, the teachers did. And, so I don't know whether they, they still use that to help children who are really flailing out and and uh, you know it can't it can't be calmed in any other way. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's deemed restrictive, yeah. and uh, that's a big no-no to do that. Yeah, well, that was what, the what, '70s when we were, you know, it, it was. I'm telling what, you, what can we do that's helpful music. and not music. harmful? This music was helpful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've come a long way in therapy, which is which is a wonderful wonderful thing. Michael, in some ways, in some ways we have, in some ways we haven't. Again. The, the knowledge that we have on hand isn't being able to be deployed because of our failing municipalities, because of failing infrastructures, because of municipalities that won't, you know, I mean, I, I every year would go and ask for a room that I could turn into a sensory room. And at first they would say, well, what's a sensory room and why do you need this? And so I was having to explain to the administration that they would have rooms dedicated to autism in their school. And I have to explain to them why I would need that. Yeah. Um, and so you, you have that sort of failing to really understand what, what the needs are of these children as well. Do so. you find that some of your parents um, are seeking alternate forms of, um, uh, of therapies, like the falling for a lot of the, the quackery, like um, the increased intake of of vitamins or uh, crawling therapy and things like that are are people still feeling that there that there is some benefit in the in the quackery that's around well i mean it's it's worth it it might be a good time now to talk about the the pandas syndrome have you heard of that no i'm afraid i haven't okay p-a-n-d-a-s syndrome okay it's the it's uh pediatric autoimmune disorder um, associated with streptococcus infection. Now, basically what is, it's children with very, 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 they've got a very weak blood-brain barrier. Mm. And so food allergies can set off autistic-like, ADHD-like, OCD-like symptoms in these children. So you have these doctors, and and one of my friends sent me a a video online of this doctor, you know, showing this child, and the child is exhibiting these types of symptoms, and then saying, okay, we 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 you you know um, used put him on this diet, and we've cleared up the symptoms. Hey, look, we've cured autism. No, you haven't. You basically have a child with this other type of disorder called pandas. That child did not have autism, and so that's really muddying the waters, and that's. Um, causing a lot of, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's causing a lot of issues as well. And that's something I wanted to bring up because it's, it's, it can be, it can be easily misdiagnosed. Matter of fact, I've got a, I've got a personal friend whose child has this and I had to, had to go to uh, a couple of his IEPs at a couple different school systems because she kept moving him around to different school systems because I kept saying, no, he's, he's autistic or no, he's got ADHD. You have to put on medication. Mm. And she's saying, no, he's not. It's his diet. It's this. And I had, I had to have to walk into these meetings and go, it's not. <laughs> and just, you know, as, as, 
as a as a kind of a hired professional. Although she didn't she didn't hire me, I just did it totally as a friend. Yeah. Um, so finally, she got a diagnosis from a doctor, and he's being treated. And sometimes he's treated with antibiotics because he so easily gets infections that can cross the blood brain barrier. Oh goodness gracious! Uh, Michael, quick question: If um, you know, let's let's I'll take my magic wand here uh, for a second, and uh, let's say I'm your fairy godfather here, and you said you said you see some of these kids maybe twice a month. And of course, I know this is a very vague question. A minimum, because, a minimum of twice a month. Sometimes yeah. I see them once a week, so somewhere between once a week and twice a month. But yes, depending on the severity of the. Depending on the severity, I know it's a vague question to ask, but you know, if I could grant you a wish, on the the average child, how much time do you think you would need to spend with them, to make it very very effective? Uh, I know it's a spectrum question. I understand that, but let's let's, let's go for an average here. I'm assuming it's more than twice a month. It's more than twice a month. I, I think that if you look at the the support team as a whole, whether it's speech, occupational therapy, and even phys- physical therapy, and some of the other support staff, um, even teachers, really. Again, you know, you know how. Let me let me ask you this: mm-hmm. um, What's what's for one teacher? How big should a classroom really be? Mm, yes. You know, tw- uh, twelve kids, eighteen kids, thirty kids, forty-five kids. I mean, should we should we have a cap? Should we have a federal law saying you cannot have more than eighteen kids in a class per one teacher? Mm-hmm. And and then from there say, okay, per so many students, you need an you need support staff consisting of speech occupational therapy, blah, 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 blah. You know, across the board, you know, again, we have an educational system that's over 100 years old. And dealing with these more extreme cases is very new to it, you know. Um, And so a lot of the municipalities are really slow to sort of realize the difference, the, 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 the depths to which they need to support the support staff in, in actually implementing a lot of these therapies in the classroom and in the school system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, going back in the dark ages again, we were lucky to have the classroom teacher and her aide who really never, the, the aides generally never had any formal training whatsoever, but they they were compassionate and they were, they, they really worked well with, with children and they they were good partners for the teachers. But we had them, and the speech pathologist, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And and there was barely enough money in the system, you know, to support us. And they looked upon us as being, you know, with with a little skepticism. Well, do we really need seven speech therapists in the system, or you know, can yeah. we when we cut two out and you know a- add another music teacher for the band? <laughs> you know, well, it was or another so, football yeah. team. That's important. Yeah. So it. it was, <laughs> you know. But uh, you know, if if we had had you. Back in those days, we it, it would have been just phenomenal. We would have been uh, we, 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 the kids would have would have been able to have that additional help, uh, and and we could have formed a team and and really done a, done a, a lot of Where the hell were you, therapy. Michael? Where yeah. have you been all this yeah, time? Yeah, where were you, Michael, when I needed you? This is all your fault. <laughs> I was at an Ozzy Osbourne concert, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do you get do you get to talk to the to the team, to the other other teachers on a fairly regular basis so you can coordinate what you're doing and, and form goals that way, or is it individual? 
Oh no, I no, it's all a team effort. I'm oh, every wonderful. Day, yeah. Every day with people, every day talking to people. What's this working? A lot of a lot of what I saw myself as doing is really consulting for teachers to help them in the classroom at all times. You know, what can we do here? Can we set up the classroom differently? Um, and a lot of the teachers are really well trained and, and, and professionals themselves. Um, so you know, sometimes when, obviously, if you remember some children with autism, especially if they got sensory problems, one can set off another one. Uh-huh. And before you know it, you've got all these sort of uh, chain reaction of behavior problems. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it was nice to be on hand when, if that happened, I could do a pull out and take one of the kids and go to the gym or go to a room and just sort of have quiet time and give the teacher and the rest of the classroom sort of a break and have both parties sort of be able to ratchet down their sort of... Um, there's their neurological activity a little bit there and, and calm down. Mm-hmm. Um, so having someone on hand to do that is really, really important. It is. It, it, it truly is. And it's great that you've got that team approach and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, can be able to have the room to be able to take that child into, into a quieter space. And well, until some, sometimes I didn't, I had to fight for those rooms. <laughs> well, we, listen, back in the days when I was a speech pathologist in the public schools, they put us into closets. They put yep. us, they put us, I, and one of my schools, I never had a room. I was in the nurse's room with the sick kids and just a a curtain pulled across because that's the only place they would they would put us. So naturally you'd have all of these kids in, in speech therapy and about half of them would be sick by <laughs> you know, because they're in the room with the nurses. So believe me, I understand fighting for space. <laughs> oh yeah, I would have uh, four to five schools I would go to a week. And out of that, one maybe one school would have an enlightened administrator that would realize that I would need an office and would, would supply it. Um, some of the other schools might have just been too small, and even if they wanted to give me space, there just wasn't. So I basically set up space in, like, the auditorium and, you know, pulled a table on the stage and, and just tried to do the best I could in a corner somewhere. Um, but it's, you know, sometimes the music room and I would use, you know, being a musician and also having a degree, um, I did a great degree in music therapy as well back in the nineties. Uh-huh. So I would, you know, use a piano and things like that to try to get the, the, the child basically to sit and, and do some fine motor, um, work and some, some finger independence work on a piano because the piano itself, it just gives the child so much, uh, visceral, auditory feedback it's a multi sort of sensory experience and so hit the hitting a nice big acoustic piano and uh, on a key would would give a child just a lot of joy um so i do things like that and um it just depends on what facilities i have in front of me at the time and the needs of the child so 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 michael and uh, i'll list that question to you and nancy as well um when you when you guys look at the future and you you're looking at you know advances in science or the political climate something like that, you guys generally positive about us finding a solution to autism or you're pessimistic? CRISPR nine, yeah. Um, if that CRISPR nine technology, yeah, um, is what they say it is, then uh, a, a lot of things will become a lot easier for a lot of people. But I would also like us to stop poisoning ourselves yes. <laughs> with petrochemicals. Um, so that would be good <laughs> as well. Um, and so those 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 things I think would. But with someone like Trump in office, uh, I don't see that as happening anytime yeah, soon. The, the, the petroleum yeah. things are going to happen for a while. You may start with stop stop eating Twinkies. You might be get people to do that. <laughs> yeah. oh, 
I'm, I'm mixed. I have a niece who just got her PhD in working with fruit flies with fragile X. And there are quite a number of researchers who are looking into that. And the, her research was sort of a game changer in, in, in what happened with, with her tests and so forth. And so if that kind of research continues, and, and Michael knows too, it'll eventually lead to what causes autism. Mm-hmm. And then the, we've got to get the money together to be able to have the right schools, the right settings, the right professional people, you know, to do that. But just, just for fun, I'll, I'll read you the last paragraph of, um, of my thesis, sure. <laughs> which has not seen the light of day until today. And now Nancy just unscrolled the papyrus. But this is, this is, going, this is in, in a way addressing the question of, of the future, and this is going back to 1972 to look awesome. at the future and rather than 2018. It says, the speech and language behavior of the autistic child may be analogous to the definition of the Russian Kremlin. It is a riddle within a puzzle within an enigma. One can only hope that additional diligent research and study will eventually untangle the complex interacting factors, revealing clearly the true nature of the behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably is a little bit true today, but we're so much farther ahead. Yeah, well, so, we've, we've unraveled a Kremlin, and we've done that much. <laughs> that's right. But I think, you know, as each, as each, we, as each generation contributed what they could with what they had to work with. Now the technology and the knowledge and the DNA and Fragile mm-hmm, X mm-hmm. is, it, it, it has to, given the time and the effort and the funding, it, it has to produce much better results in the last 40 years. It just has to. Don't you think, Michael? Yes. Yeah. Um, and generally, I'm, I'm, I'm positive the way the science is going um, still society as a whole, I'm still worried about, you know, the way we're treating teachers right now in our educational system just oh, seems to be very, very precarious. Yeah. And, and that's what worries me. I and mean, we were, we're, we've turned our backs on teachers. We've turned our backs on education, um, at least here in the States. And, and I'm, I'm quite upset about that. Um, so you just jump across the river to Windsor, uh, you know, yeah, I'd love to open arms. It is because there are so many people like yourself who reach a burnout and they say, I've done everything I can and I don't get the support. I don't get the yes. money to, to feed my own children. I can't take care of my family. I'm going to have to take a second job or a third job. And as much as those people are reluctant to leave these kids who need them, the choices are. I have to take care of myself before I can be good, any good to anyone yeah, else. Exactly. And so they leave, and it's such a loss. Every teacher that even, leaves the profession is a, is a profound loss. I even feel cynically that even some of the, the um, I think so, maybe I'm, this is just my own sort of feeling and speculation here, so forgive my emotional um, statement, but I even feel cynically when the powers that be uh, bankrupted Detroit mm. and bankrupted the, uh, the 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 school system, that they really were counting on appealing to the teachers and the support staff to kind of stay on and, and put up with being treated poorly by saying, you know, do it for the children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than, you know, turning to some billionaires and saying, nope, you're going to have to pay your property taxes. Nope, you're going to have to pay your yeah. bills, man. Exactly. And, and so that's, that's what frustrates me. I think that, that, that current societal value of, of worshiping the rich 
and bullying the people beneath you kind of makes me sick. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why I, I you know, I, I'm happy to do things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's for that sort of social awareness of, of what we're, of what, what, are, what are the tenets of society? What are the tenets of civilization? And education is a huge pillar. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're not, we're not on a good road right now with it. And uh, amongst, amongst other things. Hmm. Yeah, come on midterms. Let's let's hope. Yeah. yeah, we got to. We have to. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and explaining this to our audience. I sure hope that you the people have uh, taken heed of your warning. Uh, but in the meantime, the mic is all yours, my friend. Uh, if you want to plug yourself, uh, be shameless. Go right ahead. If people want to find out more about you, where can they reach you? Um, Facebook, Michael Moore. There we go. <laughs> That's, That's a- easy. I tell you, I wish, I wish we were sitting someplace at the same table because I would reach over and give you such a hug. <laughs> oh, it's really sweet. All Thank of your, you, you know, you, you just knit together in one big piece. You'd be so hugged so strong. Right. Nancy's got a kung fu grip, too. You no, can't get out of that. I, because I, I admire you so much. You bring so much to the profession, and you help these children, you know, more than more than anyone can, can say or, or realize. And every step that they take makes their future a little bit a little bit brighter, and that's just so worthwhile, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It, it, it is. It yeah. really, really is. Michael, before I let you go, I have to get you to say, Hi, I'm Michael Moore, and I took a left at the valley. Hi, I'm Michael Moore, and I took a left at the valley. And that was Michael Moore, not the filmmaker. With a look at children and autism. What a great, what a great. That was a great interview. That was it, a great interview. It was, it, well, it was very nostalgic for me, obviously. Oh yeah, but of course. He was, uh, he was a hero. He is a hero. Yeah, doing the work he, he's doing. he does a lot of work, and I feel, I kind of feel bad for him and a lot of people like him that are trying so hard for the children and are not given the proper resources. Oh, ridiculous. They're not, they're not supported, you know. And when you think, this is going to come and bite us in the ass in the future because it's the children are the future. And yeah. you know what? You might not want to invest in children's education now, but when you're on your deathbed and the doctor presiding over you is one of those kids, you'll want the best. Yeah. And if you can't afford, you can't think you can't afford to uh, help these children now, you really cannot afford not to. Yeah, I, well, I, it, I was inspired by my granddaughter just finished her first year in occupational therapy. And, you know, I, I hope when she hears this, and she will, I'm really hoping that she will have an inspiration in, in Michael Moore and realize that things may not always be the best in terms of your professional setting, but with dedication and information and a lot of compassion, you can do a, a, lot, of, a lot of good work with, with these kids, and he really doesn't let anything stop him. And uh, that that's the kind of people we need working with, with kids like, you know, the, the, the children that he described. He's, he's great. Yeah, absolutely, he's great. absolutely. He's great. So I have a little story. By all means. That um, I sort of shared with Michael a little bit when we were off air, and then when I thought about it, I thought that uh, people listening might think it's a good. St- I love a good. St- I love a good story. Me too. So going back to when I was a speech pathologist, and we called ourselves speech therapists. Then when we back then in the seventies, we had children that were not part of the autism spectrum, but they were what we called infantile autism, as as you know, with with the interview, mm-hmm. and. 
And so I had um, several children who were autistic on my caseload, and like typical uh, autistic children, several of them were nonverbal. And I had to really try to think, how could I engage these kids who had language learning difficulties as well as uh, a, a, a very little social interaction with the people who were around them. And during that time, this was in the 1970s, early 1970s, it was during the time that there was research going on uh, with primates as to whether or not primates, uh, apes and chimpanzees, could learn sign language and whether they could communicate because they are our relatives. And it, they, there were a lot of people who thought, yes, it was possible, and then we could communicate with them and uh, they would be able to be seen as the sentient beings that they that they are, and it would sort of tie us in you know, to the evolution evolutionary um, uh, timeline and so forth. So at that time, the most famous chimpanzee was named Washoe. And she was at the University of Oklahoma, and um, she had a, a remarkable vocabulary. I think the time that I first found out about her, there was almost 100, 150 words, and the training that she was getting was, was fabulous. And I thought... It's like more than Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit more. And I thought, you know... There's one thing that autistic kids do that might be an opening toward helping them learn language and maybe some social interaction. And I thought sign language might work because autistic children tend to use their hands and their fingers in in waving motions that are self-satisfying to them. It helps them orient them, their bodies in the world, and they just really enjoy that, that kind of, whether, whether they enjoy it or not. But it's something very mm-hmm. typical, and I thought, hmm, autistic children, primates, American Sign Language. Is that going to work or isn't it going to work? And so I I started to take a couple of the autistic kids and work not with pictures, but in with like with balls, with real life objects and myself and trying to see if I could get them through a little operant conditioning to to identify objects and use sign language. And I, I, I didn't exactly have the kind of success that I, I thought, but it, it took a lot of patience and it took a lot of work. And I thought, no, this, this there's promise here. This really, you know, if, if someone else smarter than I am that could refine this to a method, I think it, I think it could work. So I stopped um, um, teaching, but I always remained really interested in Washaw and in that kind of primate uh, behavior and, and and how they were doing it and how many were, were learning sign language because eventually what they wanted to do is they wanted to have Washaw and Coco, who was an ape, teach th- their their uh, fellow. Uh, primates how to sign how to sign which would show that they thought it was a way to communicate you know within themselves so fast forward to the early night uh, 2001 2003 I was in Texas when I was teaching but when I was up here um, and, and, and moved up here uh, in 1999 I was on a forum that had to do with 
cat cancer. <laughs> totally unrelated. But one of the women on there and I started to email back and forth, and I told her in an email about how I had related to Washaw and how inspirational she was. So we were talking about how animals can change your life. And she sent me back an email that almost threw me off the chair because she said, you know, it's really funny that you mentioned that because I'm at Central Washington University and that's where Washaw moved. This is four hours from where, from where we are up here. And mm-hmm. I thought, I can't believe this, you know, that this, this uh, chimpanzee being my hero f- since 1970 was four hours from me. So my husband and I packed up and, and went to Central Washington University to meet Washaw. And I was like, oh, this is like a movie star. It's like somebody wonderful because Aww. I had admired <laughs> so much what she had accomplished and, and the things that she had gone through. So we got there. And before they let you see the primates, you have to go through a, um, a school on how to act like a primate so that when they see you in their enclosure, they're not afraid of you. They think of you as one of their tribe. Oh, I'm a natural with that. Yeah. So you, we had to hunch over and we had to walk, you know, in a swaying way. And finally, I'm all excited. And they get us, you know, to walk in there. And the primates were behind this glass wall. And we were stuck in this little alleyway place. But it was beautiful. I mean, it was lush. They had everything in the world. They had trees. They had places to climb. They had clothes to put on. They had magazines oh, yeah. to read. 401ks. Yeah. It was wonderful. You know, they got the keys to the car on the weekends (laughs) to go up. And there she was. There were three primates in there. And there she was. But she was way over sitting up on a on a little platform, and I thought, oh, this is the closest. Well, it was closer than I'd gotten in 1972. But there she was, and I thought, oh, if she would just come to the window, and I could, you know, just feel that presence. And slowly, she just kind of decided, there were about eight or nine of us, and she decided she was going to come over to the glass, and I'm going, be still my heart. (laughs) Now, a short little break. I like different shoes. I like really cute, colorful shoes. And that day, for no reason whatsoever, I decided to put on these little red tennis shoes. And they were sort of like bowling shoes, but they were just bright red, cutest little shoes you ever saw in your life. And here comes Washo, and she comes closer, and she can, and pretty soon she's right there. I mean, it was just the glass that separated it, and my heart is thumping. And she comes over, and she looks down, and she does this with her hands. Nice shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, I can't believe after all of these years. I nearly cried. I was so excited that here my little hero was and came over to the glass, looked at my shoes and signed 
nice shoes. And you replied, goes with my purse. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I I had the purse. I wish I had a purse in the presence of mine to do that. But anyway, that's my my wash off. Oh, that's a cute story. I love that story. story. See, now I'm going to have to change the, the title of the show to A Close Encounter with a Chimp. Close encounter. <laughs> but if you can, I mean, it's hard hard to explain the thrill, you know, and the closeness that I felt with her in just that that moment. And obviously, she liked my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic story, Nancy. <laughs> fantastic story. Oh well, thank you so much, guys, for joining us today on the, this close encounter of the chip kind. <laughs> You can follow us at leftatvalley.com. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, at LETV Podcast. Send us an email at leftatvalley at outlook.com. Give us a five-star review. That would really help other people find the show. It helps us, too. Uh, send you complaints to Nancy on the third floor. Just sign Don't language. expect to keep your head. In sign language. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some pictures of cute shoes as well. Yeah. And puppies. And puppies. And puppies. Dressed up as Harry Potter. Okay, they send that to Christina on the second floor. What about, what about that little piggy in the rain jacket? Oh, the piggy in the rain jacket is okay, solid. Well, we just went to a complete tangent there. Thank you. <laughs> Trying to keep the show on the road here. All right, next week, who's back? Our old friend, Del Rey. Ooh, we'll be talking to Del Rey about why we cheat. And in June, his Juanes on Raw. Oh, so excited. So excited to finally yeah. be here. And on the ninth, we'll be talking to a couple of podcasters to have a podcast called Odd Atheist Friends. Oh. That's going to be interesting. Uh-huh. They're kind of like a, I don't know, the, the, the comedy duo of, of podcasting. And on the 16th, we'll be talking to uh, Thomas Westbrook of the Holy Kool-Aid podcast. Oh, or, or, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, it's, it's actually more of a YouTube channel. Oh. And on the 23rd, we'll be talking to the sultry voice of Seth Andrews and 10 years in atheism. Oh, a mix of new people and our favorite mm-hmm. older people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> our favorite guests. I shouldn't call them older people, especially me. <laughs> I, didn't he just turn 50 this year? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Excellent. Thank you so much, guys, for being here with us today. Uh, anything else we need to say before we go? No. All right. Perfect. I already did my Harry Potter joke. <laughs> it was the puppies dressed up as Harry Potter. <sighs> I don't need to say it now. All right. Until next time. told and believe in God assigned by your parents. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful But I swear to God, pun intended I find it disgraceful That thousands of children are raped by priests And since they're holy men of God They get away scot-free And the Pope does his very best To keep it on the hush Don't wanna affect business He loves money too much We know that they love the kids But how the fuck can we protect them While they planning to molest them We teaching them to respect them Respect them Fuck that The system is broke down Working backwards in the only action of tactic I plan to practice now is to attack them The parties of God's hands are bloodstained Millions of murders by believers And they're all in God's name And let
let me take a sec Don't mean to sound so hateful But I swear to God, unintended I find it disgraceful That many atheists are told to be quiet You're not alone, speak your mind Time to let it be known I'm proud to be an atheist A skeptic, a non-believer An infidel, a heathen I call it how I see it I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith And unsubstantiated claims That's something to be ashamed I'm an atheist Atheist, atheist 